Kirk Wellam. If you've never met Kirk before, he is the principal at Toronto Baptist Seminary, has pastored in churches in Ontario for over 24 years. He teaches systematic theology. He teaches pastoral theology. We had the privilege of having here, it was kind of the pre-conference messages on, a, on Sunday here at RBC. He's a good friend, and he's a Canadian, which just all things point in the right direction. And so he's going to come and speak his first message uh, this afternoon for us now. Les, you're a good friend, too, yeah. and a Canadian. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that, brother. Now, I realize that I, you know, have my work cut out for me at this time in the afternoon. I've just come through a semester of teaching Systematic Theology 1, which is the doctrine of God and Scripture and man, and it was scheduled from 2 to 5, uh, on afternoons and Wednesdays, and that's a brutal time to teach. I'd rather teach early in the morning or uh, later at night or in the, you know, in the evening as opposed to that uh, two to five. Now, you don't, you're not sitting there with laptops, so you're not um, doing email and checking out your Facebook page <laughs> and, and tweeting, uh, as sometimes we uh, have trouble with the students. But uh, I guess I'm saying all that to say that I'm used to speaking at this time of day. I know the challenges of it. I know sometimes when uh, after lunch I feel sleepy as the, as the professor, let alone the student. So we'll try to keep you awake. So to, to wake you up, I, I want to warn you about the danger of making a fetish out of uh, biblical theology. Uh, wake you up. Uh, I, I, teach, I teach systematic theology, and I still think that it's the queen of the, of the theologies. Uh, I, and I'm, you know, partially being uh, funny and partially serious. Uh, you know, systematic theology always takes a bum rap, it seems, these days. And uh, everybody's enamored with biblical theology. And biblical theology is great, and we're raising a, a whole generation of guys who can get to Jesus from every rock and uh, uh, road and uh, uh, tree in the, in the scriptures, uh, but, but when you've done all of that, you've got to then get down to the very, very hard work of applying what you've learned to real life. And uh, we're not so good at that. It doesn't seem to me. I mean, the gospel is not the end point. In, in some ways, it's the starting point. It's the start and the end, if you know what I mean. But once you've got to Jesus, you've got to then explain uh, what it is you've found about Jesus and how that applies to real life. Uh, systematic theology, as John Frame uh, has defined it, John Frame's a brilliant uh, fellow, and he has a very simple definition. It's the application of God's word by people to all areas of life. And uh, now, of course, there's, there's a, also a sense in which biblical theology and systematic theology are, are more similar than sometimes people let on, because the biblical theologian, although he's trying to track God's, the way God has revealed things in Scripture, is still making systematic um, decisions when he decides you know, what uh, he will pick up on, what he will emphasize, what he will neglect to point out to you. Um, so uh, we don't want to see these two disciplines um, severed from each other. We don't want them to be enemies. They're friends. Uh, we believe that uh, we start with exegesis. Uh, we need to keep in mind what people have said historically. That's historical theology. We do our biblical theology. We need to trace the plan of redemption through the scriptures and appreciate the, the individual contributions of the various biblical writers. 
I think it was um, Blake that mentioned that one of the one of the things you take away from a good study of biblical theology as an evangelical who believes in the authority and inerrancy of Scripture is the is the majesty of God in uh, giving us the Scriptures, uh, a book written by 40 human authors over 1,500 years, uh, and yet one divine author, and you can certainly see that. Uh, whether we agree or disagree on how much the individual authors knew about what they were saying, we can certainly say that God knew what he was saying. Uh, personally, I think sometimes those authors are writing better than they know. I, I find uh, it hard to believe that uh, they're almost functioning with New Testament or New Covenant clarity uh, long before Jesus has come and died on the cross and the Spirit has been poured out. Uh, the Spirit is certainly active in the Old Testament and there is insight that's given to these men and they speak prophetically, but uh, remember Peter tells us that uh, these men who spoke long ago search um, within themselves trying to understand and discern what the Spirit of Christ was saying was saying through them, which leads me to believe that although they're speaking and it has uh, their words have a bearing on their experience, there's a, a richness to their words that they themselves haven't fully grasped. And if we remember the disciples and how absolutely confused they were, even after they had spent three years with Jesus, it was only at the end of that period of time that that the, the you know the lights started to go on when the resurrection took place and. And uh, the Spirit was given to those men, and they, they could see. Uh, we, we certainly need to appreciate what God has done. He's the great author of Scripture. It's been His plan all along. In fact, if we're really doing things properly, uh, now we should start with the end of the story and work back to Genesis. We always start in Genesis and work that way, but the fact of the matter is the ultimate reality was what God had in mind all along, and, uh, and everything that He revealed in Scripture was just kind of setting us up for that. And bringing us to that. So it really works backwards. When, you, when you've started at the beginning and get to the end, you need to go to the end and go back to the beginning. And then you go, oh, I see what's going on. Uh, and then you get to systematics, right? After you've done all of that. You know, you don't pat yourself in the back. Oh, I found Jesus. Great, you found Jesus. Now, what in the world does this have to do with real life? What does it have to do with pastoral ministry? What does it have to do with preaching the gospel? What does it have to do with... Uh, I was um, sitting in the, in the conference last night in a... Uh, email came through from a student of mine who's uh, doing field work in a church and and he said oh professor I've got a I've got a question for you you know got a lady in my church whose whose son is uh, gay and who's going to be married and uh, you know should um, uh, should she she wants to know should she attend the wedding well those are those are the questions of real life you see and and they require a, a, a whole, you know, kind of Bible response. And, uh, but those are the, ultimately we've got to start answering those questions and a whole bunch of other ones. And uh, so we do our, our exegetical work, our historical work, our, our biblical theological work, and, and then we do our systematic work and we try to apply scripture to all areas of life. Now, when I was speaking to um, John Riesinger uh, many months ago about speaking at the conference, he, he said to me, uh, you know, you can do anything you want on New Covenant theology or on uh, the doctrines of grace. I thought I would leave the New Covenant theology alone because um, probably most of you have a pretty good grasp of that. That's, that's the feeling I get. Um, the doctrines of grace you also have a pretty good grasp of. So what I've done is it's kind of a hybrid. Maybe it's a Canadian solution. You know, it's a little, 
you know, we're always on the one hand, on the other hand, as Dr. Carson, a Canadian, likes to say. Uh, so I, I've chosen a passage of scripture that, that I have um, spoken about uh, numerous places before. It's a very important section of scripture. At TBS, in addition to systematics and pastoral theology, I do teach various biblical books, the book of Daniel, interestingly enough, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, the book of Hebrews uh, in uh, the New Testament, Ephesians, Colossians, what else do I do? John, the Gospel of John, a number of uh, sort of book studies like that. And uh, I want to direct you to a, a passage in, in Matthew's Gospel and to some material that um, I have shared uh, before. And uh, the closest it would come to this kind of context was a couple of summers ago, I was invited to be a part of the conference, the theology conference at Providence Theological Seminary in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And uh, this was um, you know, one of the sections of scripture that we looked at. It's Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses uh, 13 to 20. And it's a hybrid in that we'll get at some you know, new covenant theological uh, issues, as well as uh, issues that have to do with the doctrines of grace and the, uh, the sovereignty of God uh, in the salvation of sinners and in the uh, building up of his church. So if you have uh, your scriptures with you in book form or digital form, please uh, turn to Matthew 16, and I'll begin reading at verse 13 and just sort of uh, work our way through this passage before supper, and hopefully you'll be good and ready for supper um, by that point in time. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This particular section in Matthew's gospel represents a turning point in Matthew's presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it is a passage that is full of Christ, and therefore it's full of instruction for uh, people like you and I who are uh, Christians, who are Christ's disciples. And uh, it uh, reminds us, I think, of some of the uh, key features of the kingdom that Christ uh, had come to establish and has established, and of the responsibilities that, that uh, flow uh, out from this wonderful work that he has done. Uh, he, at this particular point in time, is, is communicating to his disciples things that they need to know if they are going to be effective uh, witnesses and, and uh, unique leaders in the church uh, in the in the days and weeks and months and years that are ahead. And these lessons continue to be uh, important for us today. 
Structurally, the passage is you know, really easy to speak from because it really breaks down into two parts. And not three parts, but two parts, so we'll, we'll, we won't try to find three. Where there's not three, we'll, we'll stick with the, with the two that are, that are given to us, although I know um, the value of triads. Uh, first of all, there's, there are some questions. Uh, Jesus engages in, in a, a time of asking his disciples questions about uh, what people say about him and, and, of course, what their understanding of, of who he is, what that is. And then he traces out for them uh, five implications uh, that emerge out of this uh, time of question and, and answer. So let's begin with the questions and then we'll move on to the implications. Notice, first of all, the location of this particular incident, Caesarea Philippi. Uh, this was a city built by Herod uh, Philip the Tetrarch, uh, located at the base of Mount Hermon. And if you, you know, have a Bible with maps and you look at the map that has to do with the ministry of Jesus, you'll see that Mount Hermon is located uh, 50 kilometers or 30-some miles uh, north of Galilee in predominantly Gentile uh, territory. What's interesting about that is that we are going to have a major theological disclosure uh, coming from Jesus that is actually... Um, being stated outside of Israel. And what's fascinating about that is that you probably know that the Gospel of Matthew, of all the Gospels, is, is uh, more than likely the most Jewish in orientation. That is, it's, it's a Gospel that's uh, written to, uh, to show Jewish people that Jesus is the uh, fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of Israel. You get an indication for that right at the beginning of the Gospel where uh, we have that genealogy, and the genealogy begins with uh, the reference that uh, to Jesus being the son of David, the son of Abraham. And uh, this is a gospel that has all of these fulfillment sayings in it, fulfillment formulas. Uh, and so Matthew will point out, this fulfills what was spoken through the prophets. He, he's keen to do that. He wants to, he wants to anchor uh, his portrayal of Jesus in the Old Testament. It wants to show the, re the relationship uh, that Jesus has to this previous revelation. Uh, it's not accidental that Matthew uh, is our gateway into the New Testament scriptures. Uh, it is a wonderful bridge between uh, the end of the Old Testament, whether you're, whether you're talking uh, the book of Malachi, as our Bibles are arranged, or whether you're talking you know, Chronicles, according to the, you know, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, Matthew is the place to start. And it does introduce us to uh, key things that we need to know about Jesus if we're to understand uh, all that uh, follows. And yet we have Matthew recording this discussion between Jesus and his disciples in a region outside of Israel which I think is an indicator that although Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels, uh, in another sense, uh, it, is, it is not. In another sense, the, the focus of Matthew is the world. And that's because Jesus is a Messiah that has come not just for uh, the elect of Israel, but he has come for God's elect no matter where they are found throughout the world. He has come to, to gather the uh, people of God together. And, and you see that 
uh, in the way the gospel proceeds. I mentioned the reference to Jesus being the seed of Abraham uh, and David, uh, and we've already seen in this conference how both uh, Abraham and David, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a universal aspect to the promises being made to them. And then, of course, the gospel ends with the Great Commission that we were just talking about in the last session, where uh, the command is given to the disciples to, uh, to go and to make uh, disciples of the nations, to baptize them in the triune name, and to teach them to observe everything that Jesus has uh, commanded. So Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels, and yet it has this um, international flavor to it as well, this recognition that it is too small a thing for, uh, for the Messiah just to, uh, to redeem the lost uh, sheep of Israel. Uh, the nations will be his inheritance, and he will have a people uh, that are gathered out of all of the tribes and all of the kindreds and all of the tongues and all of the nations. Well, he begins, Jesus does, with a question, who do people say the Son of Man is? When I was in Bible school many, many years ago, I, I took a course on the Gospel of Matthew. And I was listening uh, fairly carefully to everything that the professor had to say, but I really started to pay attention when he got to this particular portion of Scripture and when he suggested to us that Jesus was asking this question, not merely for the sake of his disciples, but for his own sake. That Jesus, even at this point in his ministry, was, was still somewhat confused as to who he was and, and what he was supposed to do. I you know, remember you know, turning to a good friend of mine who's uh, also in pastoral ministry even to this day and saying to him, did, did, did I hear that? Did I hear that right? You know, he must be joking. He, he, he can't be serious. Uh, but no, it became apparent as we started to ask questions that no, he was serious, that, that uh, this was a position that was out there. And I remember going to my pastor the next time I saw him and sort of explaining to him what had been said in class. Of course, he was, uh, you know, he was most alarmed that in an evangelical uh, school, this kind of thing should be uh, taught. We know that Jesus was not asking for his own sake. Uh, even if we restrict ourselves to the Gospel of Matthew, if we read from you know, chapter 1 to this point in chapter 16, we ought to know that Jesus has a very clear idea as to who he is and what his mission is all about. I'll give you a couple of examples. You take the, the Sermon on the Mount. You take the Beatitudes. You take the last Beatitude, the eighth Beatitude. Jesus there uh, pronounces a blessing upon those who are persecuted. Uh, let me uh, read the words, Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he elaborates on this uh, eighth beatitude. Uh, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, when you read uh, verse 10 and verses 11 and 12, and you put all of that together, 
you, you quickly begin to appreciate that Jesus is associating persecution with righteousness and persecution for you know, his own namesake. Uh, to be persecuted uh, as his followers, as his disciples, is to be persecuted for righteousness. And to be persecuted as his followers, as his disciples, is to put yourself in a, in a, a, disting, in a long line of distinguished uh, people who have gone before, prophets who have been persecuted because of their loyalty to God and their faithful proclamation of his message. Well, well, who does Jesus think he is? Uh, who, who is this one who identifies his cause with the cause of righteousness? Who is this one who says that if you are persecuted for my sake, why, you're like the, the prophets of old. And clearly, he, he has a fairly healthy view of himself. Or he goes on in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in the very next verse, verse 13, Matthew 5. You are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Who is he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. I you know, like to think that my students will be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, but to say so is, is pretentious, isn't it? If you've sat in my classroom and you've learned of me, let me tell you something. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Well, someone might well say, well, you've got a high opinion of yourself, don't you, as a teacher? Why, why to have learned from you is to, is to be illuminated. To learn, to learn from you is to, is to add flavor to the world and to keep the world from rotting. No, it, it's too much for any mortal to say this, but it is not inappropriate for the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he can indeed say to his disciples, he can say it to us today, uh, to the degree that we, that we embrace him and we, and we learn his words and we follow him and we love him and we serve him, we are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. Just one other uh, illustration from Matthew's gospel, and this is a little further on in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, depart from me, you evildoers. Jesus is asking his disciples, what is identity, really, in chapter 16? Who do men say that I am? I'm, I'm trying to figure that out for myself. No, here in chapter 7, he understands exactly who he is. He's the great eschatological judge. He's the one before whom all peoples will gather. His verdict is final. He will separate the sheep from the goats. Oh, he knows who he is, all right. Of course, consistent with that little glimpse we get of his early life recorded by Dr. Luke. When at 12 years old, he was confounding all of the, the doctors of the law. That would have been something, right? This 12-year-old boy <laughs> uh, asking questions, giving answers. When his 
mother asks him, son, why have you treated us like this? Or didn't you know I have to be about my father's business? No, when Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? He's not asking for his own sake. And any suggestion is just ridiculous. Especially uh, in, you know, in the, that kind of idea in the mouth of anybody who professes to be an evangelical. No, Jesus is asking for the sake of his disciples. These men must wrestle with his identity if they are going to fulfill the mission that he has uh, ordained for them. They must come to grips with his person and his work. His identity is vital. This is an area where there is no margin for error. Now, when you teach theology, you, well, you learn a couple of things. First of all, you learn to say over and over again, I don't know. <laughs> it's very liberating. <laughs> I don't know, especially when you're in the early chapters of Genesis. I don't know. Good question. I wondered that myself. I have no idea. Does anybody else have it? Not, not that I've come across. No, there's lots of people that, you know, they, they, they dream wild dreams and see wild visions, but no, nothing really worth uh, taking too seriously. And so you, you learn that. The other thing you learn to distinguish between what are life and death truths and what are, well, interesting theological discussions, but the answer of which, it's, it's important, but it's not going to determine whether you enter the kingdom of heaven. And, um, well, th this is one of these truths that is important. You know, I think I mentioned here at the church on Sunday, you know, we, we talk about trichotomy and dichotomy. Um, is man made of two parts or three parts? Well, I think he's made of two parts, but I, I say to my students, this has nothing to do with your salvation. Let's put that aside. We, we can discuss this. It has nothing to do with salvation. And there are lots of issues like that in theology. But this is, this is not one of these secondary or tertiary issues. This is, a, this is something that is absolutely key. We must come to grips with who Jesus is. This question, uh, you know, who do people say that I am? Uh, who is the Lord Jesus Christ is a vital question. Well, the disciples summarize public opinion at that particular point in time. Uh, some say John the Baptist. Well, according to Matthew chapter 14, one individual who hoped at least that Jesus was John the Baptist was Herod. You remember King Herod? Like the dancing girls? Uh, you remember he was so impressed with the, the dancing of one particular young lady that uh, big shot that he was said, you know, ask whatever you want and I'll, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom as though he really had that much to give. You know how she ran to her mother and said, what should I ask? And the mother said, well, ask for the head of John the Baptist. And Herod, I think, was reluctant to fulfill the request. Who wouldn't be? But for the sake of his dinner guests, because his own reputation, his pride was more important than, than uh, you know, doing the right thing, he gave the order and John was beheaded. And Matthew 14 uh, tells us that when Jesus came performing miracles, teaching and performing miracles, Herod said to himself, it's, it's John the Baptist who, I'm, who I beheaded. He has risen from the dead. 
You can, you can be jolly well sure he hoped it was John the Baptist because maybe he'd get a good night's sleep for a change because I'm certain that he, he, there was never a day that went by after John was beheaded that, that Herod didn't think of that event. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, uh, who was the predicted forerunner. This whole uh, Old Testament uh, teaching, particularly in Isaiah, that that, uh, uh, not, uh, not Isaiah rather, but Malachi, that uh, Elijah would uh, come. Uh, some say Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah is kind of interesting because, um, you know, we, t- we talk about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Uh, Jeremiah was, um, well, he was a man that taught with authority, and yet there was a, there was a sorrow to him. There was this weeping quality to his ministry. He had a very negative assessment of, of the religious leaders and, and uh, you know, had all kinds of things to say about the judgment of God that was going to fall upon Jerusalem, even when it was very unpopular to say that. And it's kind of interesting that people would, would, would link Jeremiah and Jesus um, because, you know, particularly in our day, you know, people want to think of Jesus as, you know, the, the, the good guy, the happy guy. Right? We'll say more about this a little later, but particularly when you contrast Jesus and Paul, well, you know, Paul, that homophobic, woman-hating uh, rabbi who never really, I mean, yes, sometimes he's, you know, he's had his happy pills and he's rejoicing in all that God has done, but other times, boy, he can be really, really a downer and going after sin and just seems to be hung up with all of his, uh, his uh, rabbinic teaching, never quite gets over it. And Whereas Jesus, the non-discriminatory, uh, loving, accepting Jesus, well, there are was something about Jesus that reminded some people, at least, of Jeremiah. I don't think that's that hard to understand. Jesus did teach with, with authority. There was a solemnity to his ministry. There was a, a soberness to it, a seriousness, a focus to it. He wasn't there joking around. He wasn't there, you know, to entertain the masses. He, he was a man on a mission, if ever there was a man on a mission. And he did speak some pretty... powerful words to the religious establishment of his day. Some, you, know, you, you read the gospel accounts and what would that have been like to have, to have heard him say that to these, to these men who were so conscious of their position and so sure of their righteousness and so entrenched in their spiritual Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What, what's fascinating is at this point in time, nobody is openly confessing Jesus the Messiah in any kind of intelligent way. Now, if you read carefully in Matthew's gospel up to this point in time, you do have at least three kinds of confessions of Christ, but it's very interesting where they're found. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, you've got some blind men calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. Blind men. Men that can't see physically, and yet they, they're, they're calling for help, and they're, they're uh, obviously looking for healing, and looking for that healing in the son of David. Chapter 15, verse 22, you've got a Canaanite woman. 
who also uses the language son of David. She's got a daughter who's demon-possessed. She's desperate. She, she, she can't find help anywhere else. And, and so she, she throws herself on the mercy of Jesus. And Jesus, that's that passage where at first he seems to deal with her rather harshly. You know, lady, I've been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, it's not right to take the, the children's, uh, you know, food and give them to the dogs. Well, yes, Lord, but even the dogs uh, you know, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Woman, you've got great faith. So we've got blind men. We've got a Canaanite woman. And then perhaps most spectacular of all, back in chapter 8, verse 29, after Jesus has has stood up in the boat and has, has muzzled the winds and the waves, be silent. And the disciples are there saying, what manner of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. They land uh, on the other side and, and they're met by demon-possessed. And what do those demons say? We know who they are. They come to torment us before the time, son of God. Who do people say that I am? Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, some say one of the prophets. Matthew's already set us up a little bit. Son of David, blind man, Canaanite woman, son of God from the mouths of demons, while the disciples scratch their heads trying to figure it out. It's not surprising that today there's still confusion as to who Jesus is. It's sad, really, at this point in time in redemptive history, so to speak, but, but it's true. The Da Vinci Code, the Jesus Papers, the Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Judas, Tom Harper's a Canadian who's written for years in the Toronto Star, a book um, I saw in the Christianity section, ironically, of um, Chapters Indigo, which is you know, your equivalent, I suppose, of Barnes & Noble. The pagan Christ. And of course, you know what that's about. Pagan Christ. Oh, Mr. Harper is, is and it's not our prime minister, it's not Harper. <laughs> but he, he's, he, he's rescuing Jesus from Christians. We've commandeered him. We've turned him into the Son of God. And so, and so he's going to set Jesus free. He's going to give us, give us back the historical Jesus. Give us back the Jew who was wandering around Palestine in the first century who was perhaps married and had a family, give, give him back to us as if he's of any value to us whatsoever in that particular form. No, there's a tremendous amount of confusion. And, you know, every year around Easter and every year around Christmas, the, the networks, at least up in Canada, and I'm sure it's probably the same down here, they like to run their stories about we're looking for Jesus. Every year, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. Won't, won't believe the, the authoritative witnesses who, uh, were, uh, who walked with him, who were taught by him, who were empowered by him to testify as to the glory of his person and his work. No, we'll set that all aside. And we'll continue our investigation. Well, Jesus asked a follow-up question. What about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, his directness is exemplary. We need to teach people how to do what's called applicatory preaching. Kind of thing that John the Baptist did. The Pharisees come to be uh, to be baptized. <laughs> Who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Now we have to pick our words carefully. Right? There's going to be a lot of trouble, right? He's brood of snakes, he says, and so forth and so on. But that's applicatory preaching. That's knowing who you're talking to. 
Don't say to yourselves, you're Abraham's children. I know what you're thinking. God's able to raise up children from Abraham out of these stones. Well, there's a little bit of this here. Jesus says, okay, we've surveyed public opinion. This is what people think about me, but fellas, what do you think? That kind of uh, directness is exemplary. This is an important question not only for these men, but it continues to be an important question today. It's a question that, you know, we need to ask students sitting in seminary. We can't assume that everybody who's found their way into seminary has a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In fact, we ought to know from church history that, that it's out of seminaries that you can get, uh, you know, the worst kind of heretics that, that, that will lead people astray. This is the most important question in all the world. Can you think of a more important question than this? Who, who is Jesus Christ? What is your understanding of him? This is more important than, you know, where you went to school, what kind of car or truck you drive, what neighborhood you live in, how many, how many, uh, you know, where you went to school, how many degrees you have, what your net worth is, whether you're a PC person or an Apple person, right? <laughs> more important than what team you cheer for. Right? This is more important than will you marry me? This is the most important question in all the world. And there comes, you see, what, what, what I think Jesus is teaching us is there comes um, a point at which discussion about him becomes intensely personal. See, this is one of the problems that we always have when we, when we, when we get involved in theological study. There's nothing wrong with theological study. That's what, that, that's what I do as well as uh, all of you to probably to some degree are involved in that, right? But what we have to be so careful of is this that we, you know, we handle these things with detachment. They become academic, intellectual abstractions. Jesus never allows us to do that. He says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And we always need to remember that. Because, you know, if, if, if what the Bible says is not true, then forget Christianity. We don't, we're not engaged in something that's, that's an interesting pastime uh, regardless of whether it's true or not. Well, it's just good for us. Well, it's like my mother you know, thinks that oatmeal is uh, you know, one of the staples of life. <laughs> what could be better for you than oatmeal? Well, you know, Christianity is just good for people. Whether or not it's true is beside the point. If, if, it, if, it, if it gives them some stability, if it makes them happy, then, then well, that's fine. That's not what the Bible says. That's not how Paul puts it, right? These things aren't true. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. No, we're not in this for the intellectual stimulation of it. We're in this for keeps. This is a matter of life and death. At least I am. I'm not playing around at this. If this stuff isn't true, i got better things to do. I don't get a kick out of, you know, you know running these you know, things through the Bible backwards and forwards and upside down like a hunter with a hound dog chasing a, you know, a, a raccoon or something. No, I, we're, we're, we're in this for keeps. Who do, you know, who do you say that I am? This is the question. This is, this, is how Jesus, this is how Jesus confronts us. You know, in the end, it tells our story, doesn't it? This is, this is really, this is everything. <laughs> how we answer this question. Well, Peter speaks up. Peter has a habit of speaking up. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> someone has said the only time, well, every time Peter speaks up, he puts his foot in his mouth. Um, but we all love Peter, don't we? Because, uh, well, yeah, you love his enthusiasm and his, his willingness to, 
you know, his willingness to put himself on the line when everybody else is, you know, being hesitant. But this time, this time Peter's right. Now, I hate to tell you, but a little later in the chapter, as you already know, he's wrong. <laughs> but early in the chapter, things are going well, it's right. And so Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Now, you know as well as I do that um, Messiah means anointed. Some of our versions translate Christ, Christ, Messiah, anointed, the anointed one. Son of the living God is a messianic designation reflecting uh, God's fatherly relationship to the Davidic David. And we've heard about that going back to a passage like Psalm 2. I'm, I'm not at all convinced that that uh, Peter at this particular point in time would have, you know, for him to say you're the son of the living God would have a, you know, a, a grasp of, of all that that means in terms of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and you know, all the issues uh, surrounding the, you know, the Godhead and the, and the uh, persons of that Godhead. Certainly uh, in light of the cross and, and with the uh, outpouring of the Spirit, uh, these words would, would take on added significance. Maybe he had to grasp all that here, but at the very least, we can say that the Son of the Living God is, is, a, is, a, is a messianic designation. So what, what Peter's confessing is that Jesus is the Christ. He's the, he's the Messiah. He's the, he's the, the, the long-promised one. He's the, he's the, the Davidic uh, heir. And Peter's right. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of the Living God. In fact, Peter has said a mouthful. P- Peter, and, and, and this is, a, uh, I think, a case in point of what I was saying earlier, Peter's right in what he says, but it's going to become clear from later in the chapter that Peter doesn't fully understand even what he's just said. Even though he said it, as Jesus is going to indicate, by divine illumination, he still doesn't, at this particular point, really understand the fullness of what has come out of his mouth. Yes, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God, which we could unpack to say, well, he's our great prophet. He's our great priest. He's our great king. These are, these are offices. These are men who were anointed by God in the Old Testament to serve God. And, and Jesus is the fulfillment of, of all of those types and shadows. Why, he's not just the one who speaks the word of God. He is the word of God. And he's not just a a priest uh, thinking, you know, of of some Levitical priest or even, uh, you know, thinking of the the high priest, but he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a a priest in a category of one. And he's not just any king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Oh, yes, he's he's the Messiah. He's the son of the living God. Now, Jesus traces out the implications of what has been said. And there are five things I'll, I'll draw to your attention here quickly. First of all, uh, Jesus uh, says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Which means, if I put it really simply, that if we are to understand who Jesus is, God must turn the lights on. Now, that's not, that's not fancy theological language, but you understand what I mean. And, and this is true not just of Peter, but it is true of, of everybody who has ever come to know God, the only way God can be truly known, and that is through his Son, the Lord Jesus. 
it reminds us of the fact that as, as wonderful as Jesus' works were, as penetrating as his words, even his closest disciples were not able to discern the mystery that surrounded him in their own strength. A proper understanding of who Jesus was had to be supernaturally revealed. It had to be revealed from heaven itself or by God. Now, you know that. But John said to me, well, do new covenant or do the doctrines of grace. Well, you know both those things. But that's good. We, we, We need to know that and we need to be reminded of that. God must turn the lights on. Why do we need to be reminded of that? Because we, there, there's always a tendency in the church for, for Christians to go running after the latest fad. And sometimes it's a reformed fad. And sometimes it's not. There's all kinds of fads. I'm getting old enough now that I've lived long to see, you know, to see fads come around another time again. Let's do this all over again. A kinder, gentler kind of version of it, but uh, same basic thing all over again. And so people get enamored with this theology or that theology or this way of doing things or this guy's ministry or that guy's ministry and, and, and everyone buys into it and everyone tries to copy it for a while. But when it sputters and falls, then they're on to, on to the next thing. Why are we attracted to this kind of thing? Well, because we have a hard time really feeling the, the truth that, that I think Jesus is, is, is communicating to his disciples. Remember, these are men that are going to be sent out into the world and not so far down the road, to do difficult work. There are going to be men who are basically going to be called to to preach to the dead, to call the dead to hear the voice of God and to turn in faith and repentance. These men had better know that 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 kind of illumination comes down from heaven because otherwise they'll be horribly discouraged. You see, we got to remember that. we got to remember that. This, This is what we need more than anything else. Christianity, when all is said and done, is a supernatural religion. And it requires God Almighty to bear his arm and to do something that we can't do for ourselves, no matter how clever we are. And we're always, you know, trusting in this or that or something else. It doesn't matter. It's of the Lord. You know, we say that, but we got to feel that inside. I don't know how else you're going to penetrate the darkness of our cities and our towns and our communities and our culture unless God illuminates the darkness. I don't know how else that's going to be done. Because quite frankly, if you talk, if you really talk to people outside, they think we're all nuts. You know, we, we can come with, we come with our, our, our heroes and everything, but, but outside of our circles, nobody pays attention to them. They don't see them as, as you know, as even being intellectuals worth, worth reading. We, 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 we pat ourselves back, we hold our conference, you know, like, say we, these guys get these conferences, they get 4,000, you know, 5,000 men together, and they go, whoa, this is fantastic, and it is fantastic at certain then you read about some high school in Texas that gets, you know, 60,000 people out to a high school football game. And I say, well, just keep that in mind, guys. Just remember that. How, did you, how many did you have in your conference? 5,000. That's great. 60,000 at a high school football game. You're small potatoes here, you know. So, so, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. And, and, and so, you know, we shouldn't get all, oh, man. Our big banners up there. Here's Joe Blow, and here's this guy here, and he's written this book. No one's reading their books. You know that. No one's reading those books. No one's listening to their sermons. Well, the, 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 the inside group is, but nobody on the outside. Well, what's going to make the difference? How are you going to penetrate the darkness of this culture? God must bear his arm. So that means what? 
well, we've got to go out and do all those things, but we better get in our faces before God and say, Lord, Lord, we need you to do what we can't do for ourselves. Otherwise, this is hopeless. Second lesson. Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Well, I understand Jesus to be teaching Peter that the church that he's going to build is built on an apostolic foundation. Now, that's really simplifying a lot of, <laughs> a lot of complicated stuff, I realize. That. If you've ever read material on this passage, you know that so much ink has been spilled over this thing. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. So what's the Greek? What's the Aramaic? You know, and, and you know, these guys go back and forth. I, I've told this story uh, sometimes before that I remember as a, as a boy, oh, what would I have been, 15, 16, when my parents were first coming to the Dogs of Grace, we went down to a conference. I don't know if some of you remember those comments of Pinehurst, Harvey Cedar, something back that far. Anyway, uh, I remember going down there as a boy and listening to a very, you know, distinguished speaker speaking on this text, and it was a hot, hot day, and I just wanted to get to the beach, and and he, he was he was going on and on and on and trying to show that, well, even though Jesus said you are Peter on this rock I'll build my church, he wasn't really talking to Peter, and. Um, I, I just I remember I remember thinking even at that point, well, that's kind of what it seems to say here. I don't know anything about Greek and I don't know anything about Aramaic, but that's kind of what it seems to say here. Uh, and I know that the Roman Catholics have turned Peter into the first pope, but but Jesus does say, I, I tell you that you're Peter on this rock I'll build my church. And I, I wish you'd just finish your sermon so we could you know get lunch and go to the beach. <laughs> Well, that's because I was very unspiritual. I, you know, was not even saved at the time. But even that, I'm just thinking, what? Do words have any meaning? Well, I don't think it's necessary for us to, you know, to be theological, you know, limbo dancers or anything like that, the exegetical hopscotch or something. Um, I think that Jesus, the builder of the church is recognizing the priority of Peter in salvation history. And he is recognizing that by grace, Peter is the first of the disciples to truly understand, and even that truly there needs to be kind of nuance at this particular point in time, but to, to understand and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, and that as the first disciple to confess Christ, Peter is described as the rock on which the the church will be built, meaning that he will have a key role in the establishment of the church. Doesn't mean he's the first pope, doesn't mean he's a super rabbi, doesn't, you, know, any, you don't have to freight it with all that kind of baggage. It just means, you know, you're Peter. Now, there's a play on words here, of course. Uh, you know, the name means stone in Greek and rock in Aramaic. And, and there's probably even a little bit of irony given what's going to happen a little later on in this very chapter. But uh, I, I think what Jesus is teaching is that he's building his church on an apostolic uh, foundation and that Peter, um, as, as one who is confessing Jesus as Christ, has, a, has a, a, an important role to play. And indeed, that's verified by the book of Acts, is it not? I mean, in the book of Acts, who is it that stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches that, that wonderful sermon uh, to explain the phenomena? It's Peter. 
And who is it that really dominates the first half of the book of Acts? It's Peter. It's Paul who comes in the last half. But it's Peter in that first half. Key role, uh, especially taking the gospel to the Jews and, and uh, ministering in that way. Paul going to the Gentiles. So, so Jesus here, I think, is, is talking about the church built on an apostolic foundation. Well, why is that important? Well, I've already mentioned earlier in the message, uh, you know, the tendency of some to, to want to drive a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And we can extend that out. We can say not just Jesus and Paul, but Jesus and the apostles. And, and this is behind, you know, a lot of, of uh, liberal readings of, of the gospel accounts. You know, we, 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 cannot, we cannot trust what the gospels are saying about Jesus because all of these men and the communities they represent have their own agendas, right? And so we have to pick our way through what Matthew says, Mark says, Luke says, John says, and, and out of this, all of this data, we hope to reconstruct the true Jesus. Funny thing is, this has been pointed out by many people, I, I remember Don Carson pointing it out, that, that the Jesus that's reconstructed always seems to resemble the reconstructor, right? So, so, we, so we go looking for the true Jesus, and when we find him, wonder of wonders, he looks just like us. And we feel good about that. The only way we have access to Jesus is through the, you know, the writings of, of the men that he chose and, and uh, illuminated and commissioned to, to uh, you know, tell us about who he is, about his person, about his work. If, if we reject the apostolic testimony, we're, you know, we're, we're on our own. We're, we're out to sea without a compass. It just becomes, it's a sea of subjectivism. It becomes, well, well what do you think? What do you think? There's no, there's no objective foundation. There's no way to say this is right, this is wrong. We must never let anyone drive a wedge between Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and, and, and the Bible, for that matter. Sometimes that wedge is, 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 uh, is erected. So that you have people talking about, well, well, I worship the living Christ. You're bibliolatry. You're a bibliolater. You're, you're worshiping a book. Oh, it sounds very spiritual initially, but the, the problem is that, that we, only, you know, we have access to, the, to, to, to Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, and to the God-man. We have access to him through what? Through the, through the Bible. You know, the, the written word and the incarnate word uh, cannot be you know, separated from, uh, from one another. So we need to understand that that uh, we only perceive who Jesus is as God illuminates us. And uh, we must never drive a wedge between uh, Jesus and the apostles because Jesus himself, the master builder, said that he was you know, building on an apostolic foundation. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And one other thing I should mention, too, and that is the, the flexibility of the metaphors. You now, some people say, well, isn't Jesus the rock? Well, yes, sometimes Jesus is portrayed as the rock in the New Testament, but here Jesus is the builder, and he's building on an apostolic foundation, something like you know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Uh, you know, the church built on the foundation of the, of the apostles and prophets, who I understand to be you know, uh, New Testament prophets, apostles and New Testament prophets. Uh, Jesus is doing the building, and he's building on this apostolic foundation, and we need to respect that. Thirdly, he tells us that this church he's building is... is uh, invincible. He says the gates of death uh, will not overcome it. And that's so encouraging. That's, 
I mean, where would we be without promises like that? Oh, how encouraging. You ever tried to plant a church? Ever tried to revive a church that someone else planted a long time ago? Ever tried to, 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 to move into a church in which all sorts of traditions have been uh, enshrined in, in, uh, you know, in stone? Ever, ever tried to, uh, you know, uh, penetrate a situation in which, um, you know, people have been distracted by all kinds of other things and, 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 and they want to, you know, turn and say the church being a, you know, the assembly of God, the gathering of God's people... Uh, where, where the Lord Jesus Christ is honored and, and, and worshipped and where people are encouraged in the things of God, they want to turn it into something else. It's so encouraging to know that the church that is being built, the people that are being gathered, the assembly that, that's being put together by Jesus is invincible. Fortifications of darkness will not prevent the gathering of God's people. The church will not disappear. Yes, individual Congregations may go out of existence, candlesticks removed uh, for, for a variety of reasons, but the church will endure until Jesus comes in glory. I say, what an encouragement in difficult times. I will build my church. And the gates of death, powers of darkness, will not overcome it, prevail against it. I want to translate that. This won't. And then there's a word here about authority. This church has authority. I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Well, um, some of what uh, Blake said in the earlier um, couple of sessions, I think, uh, fits in nicely with, with this, what, what, what's being spoken about here. Well, we don't have a lot of time to unpack this. It's, it's not talking about the powers of church councils or, or you know, leaders or you know, renegade elders to open and close uh, the kingdom of heaven. By renegade elders, I mean elders you know, who are abusing their power. Forgotten in the new covenant community, all possesses the spirit. That spirit falls on the young and the old, on men and women. There's really no, quali- no qualitative uh, dis- uh, distinction in the, in the, in the spirit. Yes, there's different gifts, but, but it's the spirit that's fallen equally upon all. Brother remind us yesterday that you know there are implications for, for ministry. Yeah, you bet there are. Because if we're dealing with a with a with a, a true assembly of God that has been baptized in the Spirit, you know, even, even as church leaders, we're we're dealing with with people who have an anointing like ours. You know, the, the, the longing of, of Moses has come true. Oh, that oh that God would put his spirit on all of his people. Man, that would make my job a lot easier. And Moses knew what he was talking about because his job was worse than any of ours as pastors. Right? He was called to lead a stiff-necked and uncircumcised people who resisted God every step of the way into the promised land. It's no wonder he said, Joshua, don't be jealous for my sake. Man, I've been around long enough to know that if God would give the Spirit to all these people, it would be a lot easier to do this job. And, and, and we, that's what we're, we're, we're dealing with that. If, if we're dealing with a new covenant community, and if we're not, then you know what to do. We need to start preaching to them. Praying for them, saying, Lord, give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that will be responsive uh, to you. But anyway, going back to these these keys here, um, I think what is uh, in view here is is really the gospel, the gospel. 
Uh, it's, it's, it's the authority inherent in the gospel in the name of Jesus. This is, after all, what, what opens the kingdom of heaven and what closes it in a sense. It's this proclamation that, that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father but by him. Embrace this, and why, heaven itself is yours. But despise it, ignore it, disregard it, repudiate it. You will never, you will never see, you will never enter the kingdom. It's a solemn authority, isn't it? A very solemn authority that that has been, I think, given to to the church ultimately. I mean, you probably know that very similar words are spoken again in chapter eighteen, and uh, you know here there, it, it, you know, it's an apostolic kind of authority. But but in chapter eighteen, it, 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 there's a broader kind of application of this principle to the church as a whole. You know, in the matter of of uh, discipline and, and uh, you know, working with the people of God. You know, sometimes, well, not sometimes, like we live in a world in which, well, you know, pastors, I don't know what it's like down here, but, you know, up in Canada, pastors are you know, like politicians, you know, used car salesmen. Um, what, what other noble callings can I think of, <laughs> you know? Right, I'm at a seminar. One of the things I keep saying to the churches: you need to, the churches need to identify their very best. And if they see any evidence that God has perhaps uh, given someone gifts and abilities and has laid His hand upon them, they need to be encouraged to, to you know, to pray about that and to, you know, inquire about um, Lord's will for their life and, po- and the possibility of getting further training. Why do I say that? Well, because if we don't do that, no one else is going to do. You know, it's not as though everyone else is just clamoring to, you know, get into Christian ministry or clamoring to be the pastor of a church. That isn't the case. Now, there are churches that are clamoring for pastors. Matter of fact, we have more people looking to the seminary to supply pastors than than we can supply, you know, graduates. We just can't graduate them fast enough, at least not good ones. The world doesn't look upon us as anything, but, boy, a pastor's like this. I'm not just referring to pastors. I'm just, the, just as, as Christians as a whole. Does the world pay much attention to us? They come looking for our opinion on much of anything? No, not today. No, it's almost politically. In Canada, you, you couldn't get elected to any kind of significant office and be a, a Christian that ever opened your mouth and said anything that resembled the truth. There's no way. There's no possible way. And, and maybe you could do that here. Maybe not. I don't know enough. Boy, this says the church has authority. But it's the authority of the gospel. But, but I think we need to appreciate that. You know, we're not just playing religious games. You know, when we meet and we unpack the riches of the things of God, man, there's something important about that, and we should feel the importance of that. Say, hey, just a second here. You know, I may be nobody, but the one I represent is somebody, and this gospel that he's entrusted to me is a message you need to hear whether you believe it or not. And I'm going to do everything in my power to try to communicate that to you. You know, we, there, we need a sense of that again. Not, not to be ashamed. Not to, be, not to let the culture of political correctness, you know, shut our mouths so that we have to just tiptoe around everything. I'm not saying, you know, call on us to be obnoxious and boorish or anything like that. But, but oh, no, to, to, to recognize, hey, Jesus has given us the keys of the kingdom. You know, that's the gospel. What a wonderful privilege to be able to go to say, listen, whosoever will may come. 
And if you come, you will be received. Do you understand that? doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. If you'll come, you'll be received. Jesus will receive you. He will save you. He will take you as his own. You know, we need some of that kind of pleading today. I, I remembered in days gone by, but I don't hear a lot of it today. It's very much more sophisticated than what we just... You know, someone mentioned, I think it was the representative from, uh, from every tribe. You know, one of the things we've noticed going around to mission conferences, you know, where all the missions kind of come together, is that, well, they're involved in digging wells and getting fresh water. They're involved in agriculture. They're involved in healthcare. And, and, and don't get me wrong, those things are all important. And they can all go, you know, hand in hand with the proclamation of the gospel. But listen, if we're, if we're Christians, uh, along with doing those other things, we had better be proclaiming the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody can dig a well. Anybody can you know, help out with health care and teaching people a language and, 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 and so forth and so on. But not everybody can tell a sinner where there is salvation and, and have the privilege of, of proclaiming to them that name which is above every name, that name of Jesus. Well, lastly, uh, I think Jesus teaches his disciples that we can never understand who he truly is unless we view him in light of the cross and what a friend of mine up in Canada likes to call the cave or the open tomb. A cross and cave, that two C's, that kind of sticks together there. Maybe that'll stick in your mind. You can never understand who Jesus is without the cross and the cave, the, the cross and the resurrection. Now you see, where do I get that? Well, I, I see that in, in verse 20. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. There's a saying in, in uh, the real estate business, location, location, location. Right? You all know that. It applies in hermeneutics as well. Do you know that? Location, location, location. Uh, this... This text, the location of this text is very important to understand what's going on here. You know, I, I use this in illustration when I'm teaching students. I say, so suppose, I, suppose I showed up for class next week and I said, you know, I was reading my Bible this past week and I came upon Matthew 16, verse 20, and I, I, I read it over once, I read it over again, I read it over a third time, and, you know, a revelation came to me. Revelation was this. Jesus doesn't want us evangelizing. Jesus doesn't want us sharing our faith or telling anybody about who he is. I mean, can words be any more plain than these? Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he's the Messiah. You know, we've been, we've been wrong all these years. What in the world are we doing? I mean, you know, how, do we, how do we miss this? And I say to them, I hope that one of you, who's had hermeneutics, would say to me now, dear professor, you do need a vacation, and, and dear professor, location, location, location. Why does Jesus forbid his disciples to speak? Well, the answer is given a few verses on. When Jesus starts to talk to his disciples about going to the cross, about being rejected, about being, about being put to death, and about rising again on the third day, and Peter takes him aside. Peter, this one who, is, who has just uh, proclaimed him Messiah. Peter, this one who has just you know, been proclaimed blessed Peter, who's just been said to be, you know, uh, have a, a strategic role in terms of the uh, foundation of the church. 
Peter says, oh, not you. And Jesus says, what? Get behind me, Satan. You see, these men aren't ready to go out and do evangelism yet. They need some, there's some work to be done. They understand that Jesus is a Messiah. Yes, they do. But they don't understand the unique nature of that Messiahship. He is Messiah, and that Messiahship is only fully understand, understood when you see him ascend to the cross, when you see him lifted up from the earth, when you see him glorified in that way. Ah, then you understand that he is a king who comes to his throne in the most unusual manner imaginable. And only when you grasp the riches of his resurrection, his death and his resurrection, are you then in a position to do what the disciples are told to do at the end of the gospel, to go and make disciples of the nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. There's a Christological focus to the instruction. Everything Jesus has commanded, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. What do we take away from all of this? Jesus is the great builder of the church. I don't know about you, but that's a great relief to me. The church he's building is built on an apostolic foundation. Let's not be ashamed of it and let's never depart from it. It will stand the test of time. The institutions, the kingdoms of this world will come and go. They will be dust in the wind. But the church of Jesus Christ, the bride that he has uh, died to redeem and to purify and to cleanse, that new Jerusalem which will descend out of heaven from God will remain. We have a job to do as Christians. We've been given authority. It's gospel authority. Let's exercise that authority by his grace. And let us remember that there's no restriction anymore. We don't have to keep our mouths shut because Jesus has risen. All authority has been given to him. As, as, as Blake pointed out, you know, he, he has received, as you know, Daniel foresaw, authority and dominion to reign and to rule. Oh, and as the, as the book of Daniel so wonderfully portrays, he will reign and rule forever and forever and forever. And so we have every reason to be encouraged. It's time, for, time to stop. It's time for supper. Um, but let's just close in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impress your truth upon us. I pray that you would draw near to us in the power of the Spirit of God. This is what we need more than anything else. May we not trust in anyone or anything other than you. We thank you for the revelation that you've given us in the Scriptures. We thank you for the wonder of it, for the glory of it, for the, for the, the evidence on every page that that you, in, a, in the most sublime and glorious way, have, have worked through uh, the human authors to communicate to us exactly what you wanted to say. Help us to think your thoughts after you. Help us to rejoice in everything that you have made known. May the scriptures indeed lead us to Jesus Christ. And having led us to him, may we bow in submission 
at his feet. And may we take this glorious gospel that's been entrusted to us out into the world, going with these kinds of promises that you are able to to give light, that you are able to um, preserve uh, what you have established, that it indeed will triumph over all opposition in the end. Lord, we thank you that we stand where we do in redemptive history, and we are able to appreciate now what what the, the disciples struggled to understand, that Jesus is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords, that, that he has been given that name which is above every name, and that at Jesus' name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory, our Heavenly Father. We pray that... Uh, you would go with us now and bless our fellowship around the, uh, the uh, table and be with us in the remainder of the conference tonight and tomorrow. We ask it in Jesus' name.